Take your Bibles, turn to Acts 23. I was thinking this week as I was reading about Paul's trials and thinking about these last few chapters that we've been in about it seems so removed. One is because it's, you know, a couple thousand years ago. And two, it's like, you know, the guy's getting stoned, being beaten, you know, jailed for his faith, things that we don't normally know about or, or, or experience here, right? The more I thought about it, I was saying, well, it, it makes me appreciate what I experience are more like inconveniences often. The more we complain about inconveniences, perhaps it kind of contributes to having weak stomachs for when real persecution comes. I mean, think about that. I mean, I often find myself saying, maybe you've said this often, that, you know, when something happens in my life, I'll say, uh, well, that's a first world problem, right? And and it's a way of diminishing how important this thing uh, really is. You know, like slow internet at home. That's an inconvenience. That's really not a trial, okay? Having to wait an extra hour for Instacart to arrive with the food at your home, that's an inconvenience, right? Uh, My salad is not exactly as I ordered it from the restaurant. That's an inconvenience. My, My SUV has an extra dent in it. Okay, that's a, an inconvenience. Not a re- I'm not being persecuted by a dent, all right? all right? I didn't get the exact rate I wanted on my house. Again, an inconvenience. I mean, I'm buying a house. I have a car that I drive. I have things that 97% of the world doesn't have, and I'm, I'm enjoying these things, right? So the, the list can, can go on. But in the scheme of things... These are inconveniences and not problems in a real sense. It's not a trial, right? And I love how Christians spiritualize these inconveniences by calling it an attack from Satan. That cracks me up, you know, like Satan's really interested in the dent in my SUV or something. But when my perspective exaggerates inconveniences... I think it lowers my ability when real trials, to to handle when real trials come. When my perspective exaggerates inconveniences, it lowers my ability to endure when real trial comes. Let's say inconveniences on a scale of one to 10, you know, 10 being great pain, inconveniences are like a two, but I'm making it an eight or a nine. I mean, when a real trial comes, I, I have no room to even fathom God helping me, right? Fear makes trials bigger than God. Faith makes God bigger than the trials. Jeremiah said, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth in your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing is too difficult for you. You know, one of the benefits of being a pastor is hearing all the problems that people have. And let me be quick to say, I don't don't mean that I get joy out of that or that I'm immune to having my own problems. But what I mean is that 
I'm encouraged to often see how people are responding to when they get bad news from the doctor or maybe they're feeling rejection by a, a, a close one. And I see them expressing faith and not just going bonkers, but just really, you know, just really leaning into the Lord. It's amazing to see God work like that and to see people express their faith in such tangible ways. And so reading Paul's travails, when you consider all that, doesn't seem so far removed, but it it challenges my own faith to not raise my inconveniences, you know, to the level of a trial or persecution so that I can be better prepared when that trial or persecution comes. And what's amazing when I do that is my heart starts expanding and being a lot more grateful for how good God has been in my life and in your life. And so these trials become kind of a a laboratory for faith, what we go through whether it's an inconvenience or a trial. Now, you get a feeling for the magnitude of what Paul had to face when we look through the record of Acts. Let's listen to this. Out of Acts 9, 23 and 25, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were waiting or or watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Acts 9.29, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenist, but they were seeking to kill him. Acts 13.50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, drove them out of their district. Imagine staying in a hotel somewhere And they're saying, we don't want you here driving you out because of your adherence to the gospel. Acts 14, 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. Acts 18, 12, but then Galileo, was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. Acts 20, verse 3, there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. You ever had a group of people who accuse you wrongly create a plot to do injury to you? Now, some of us imagine that, but I'm talking about in real life, that taking place. Paul had that happen more than once. So how did he respond to this? And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Humility, tears, and trials. I don't expect life to be gravy train. That's humility. Tears and trials, yes, it hurts. He grieved. He wasn't, you know, trying to hide this. He was honest with himself and with God. 
For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. I like this because he, he names it what it is, okay? He's not in denial, but he leaves it in God's hands here in 1 Thessalonians. He realized God is the judge. I'm not going to go out of my way to try to get back at these people who've made me an enemy. One thing that's really difficult, if you know somebody has something against you or they say something against you, you know, you want to tell everybody else your side of the story to make sure people know, you know, you're the good one, they're the bad one, right? Paul doesn't do any of that. God, this is in your hands. You take care of them, you know, I'll take care of moi. That's kind of cool. So that's kind of the backdrop of how Paul is responding, and I think that's kind of a backdrop for us to realize that going through these severe trials, he, he readied himself long before then, and we'll see some clues as to, to how he did that. So let's take a look at our passage today in Acts 23, verses 12 through 22. Let's all stand. When it was day... The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we've strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. 40 people out to kill you. That's what you call a bad day. What we learn about this is that they are motivated by religion. Motivated by religious fervor, religious pride. These were Jews, probably the same Asian Jews that came down to Jerusalem to falsely accuse Paul of having somebody in the temple that that shouldn't have been there. Probably the same group. 
the rabbis allowed four vows uh, to be broken. Vows of incitement, vows of exaggeration, vows made in error, and vows that cannot be fulfilled by reason of constraint. Well, that pretty much leaves it open for just about anything to not be held to, right? Um, Apparently, these 40 had more bark than bite in terms of the keeping this vow until their death, and we can reasonably doubt that these uh, 40 die of hunger uh, or thirst. It's a peculiar thing to think of how religious people can get themselves in such a frenzy that they are doing evil in order to eradicate their enemies or their own perspective of evil. Happens a lot. It can happen within evangelicalism by people being hateful towards other people that, you know, they are not on the, they're on the naughty list and they are essentially acting in a, in a hateful manner. But even bigger than that, you have the Crusades, the Inquisitions, you know, the Aztecs sacrificing children, European uh, religious wars, blowing up abortion clinics, 9-11. These are examples of religious fervor going amok. Pascal said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. This group of Jews, they are verifying their continued rejection of the gospel by rejecting the message from Paul. Verse 14, they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we've strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we're ready to kill him before he comes near. Here in verses 14 and 15, we have this religious uh, death squad, religious death squad. Now, there's a phrase. They hatch their plan before the chief priests and the scribes. I mean, most commentators agree that this faction of the Sanhedrin were made up of the Sadducees, because you might remember from weeks previous, uh, the Sadducees and Pharisees were in a big argument on the Sanhedrin. The, the, The Pharisees sided with Paul because they agreed with him on the resurrection, so it's likely that these were mostly Sadducees. But what does it say about an organization if murder is entertained by the religious leaders? I mean, they they somehow knew that they would have an audience with the religious leaders by talking about murder. It's amazing. I mean, every Christian organization and every leader has to pause and consider what they are presently allowing under their tent, right? Whether it's, you know, some nefarious practice with money or, or leaders arrogantly acting like they're above the rules. I believe God's going to expose all that at some point. I have a friend who manages a creative agency of leading Christian leaders and expanding their influence on radio and on TV. He told me not too long ago of a well-known Christian leader who was very arrogant and belligerent. And when my friend, who owned this company, 
confronted him about this, like, you know, dude, you may chill out a little bit. This guy huffed and puffed and basically just ended up taking his toys to go play elsewhere. All because it was a conversation of you're being a real jerk. And, you know, this is not becoming of you being a Christian leader. And by the way, that same year, he was fired from his church shortly thereafter for bullying, financial misconduct, fostering a spirit of fear and paranoia. And what does he do? He just goes starts another church somewhere else in another state. Way to go. I say these things not to point a finger at one individual, but to say this. We are all susceptible. How did that guy get there? He didn't get there by just all of a sudden being a jerk. He got there by being a little jerk. (laughs) And then wasn't, and I know he was confronted numerous times uh, by his church and then my friend, but he was saying, you know, no to these people, trying to be his friend, telling them you've got a problem. And what happened is, instead of admitting his fault, he became blind to his own sin. Numbers has a little phrase or a little uh, verse here that says, but if you will not do so, behold, you've sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. All that, all that pastor had to do, admit your fault. And, and daily, could we not do this? Admit our fault, you say something stupid, you're, you're prideful or whatever. And when confronted, just say, man, you know, that, that, that's so true, I, I was wrong there. And it, what it does, it, it creates a greater sensitivity to this. You know, oh, and I've said this before, but Psalms 32 has a great passage of, of David. And if you're not familiar with the story of David, he committed adultery, he killed a, a woman's husband, you know, did, did a lot of bad things, right? But he didn't just get there all of a sudden. He had lust was obviously an issue. Anger, you know, was an issue. The bottom line is that he says in in Psalm 32 is, I want to be led by the Lord's eye as opposed to being led by the horse's bridle. And what he's saying is that when you you pull on the bridle, what does that do? That, That causes pain in the horse's mouth, and it steers the horse. Instead, he says... I want to be led by just a soft glance of the Lord, just giving me a gaze. It's like, oh, man, I know. You know, that is wrong. I need to, I need to repent. I need to get on the, uh, another path here. But instead of being sensitive to the sin, he became hardened. And then God needs to apply the pain, the discipline, to get us back on track. Verses 14 and 15 remind us we don't get to the point of entertaining murder overnight. You arrive there gradually by allowing your pride and your hate to dictate your reactions. Now, despite all this with these corrupt religious leaders, despite this plot that Paul had upon his life, God was still at work. God was still moving. God was still sovereign. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush 
So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. Now this is the first time we read of one of Paul's relatives, and we don't have much information given. I mean, was, was Paul's nephew a Christian? We don't know. Doesn't tell us. I mean, how did he garner information about this plot? We don't know. Did Paul's sister live in Jerusalem? We don't know. Now, if Paul had relatives living in Jerusalem, why didn't he stay with them? Again, we don't know. Did they reject Paul because he came to Christ and they were declaring allegiance to Judaism? Again, none of those things we know. But what we do know is that a young nephew of Paul stood up for him, and he reveals this murderous plot to have him killed. Now, it may seem a little weird to us that Paul is so accessible to his nephew, but remember, he's not been officially charged yet. He's just being held, right? And in addition, prisoners of high rank, someone like Paul, you know, well-known, and also a Roman citizen, they were given a lot of liberty for visits with family and friends, even when they were held. What we see is Paul doing the best he can to do God's will. And God was inserting people along the way to help him. The courageous nephew, the compliant centurion, the discerning tribune, all are essentially there to stop this plot. The centurion, we know, is in charge of 100 men. The tribune was in charge of 1,000 men. So they had some influence. Now, they may not be as miraculous as an angel that, you know, tore off the shackles like we've read before in uh, other episodes within the book of Acts. But it's no less an expression of God's work. God made a promise. Acts 23, 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you may also testify in Rome. You're not going to die in Jerusalem. That's what God is telling him. And that was an echo of Acts 18. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I will see to it that you get to Rome and you get there alive. God had a promise to keep, and God was going to protect him. He did so with a nephew, a message from a centurion, an influence from a tribune. Sometimes the most casual and normal happenings or people can reflect divine interference or influence in our lives. Is it possible that sometimes our faith fails to acknowledge a sovereign God at work in the humdrum of everyday life? I mean, we, we expect lightning and God provides a soldier. We expect an angel and God sends a teenager. Spiritual eyes see God at work daily. Maybe we need to take the admonition in Revelation 3 where we're said to 
You need to put salve on your eyes that we may see. Lord, help me to see more clearly you at work. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner asked me, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is that you have to tell me? The centurion delivers the young man, Paul's nephew, to Lysias, the tribune. And then the tribune takes the boy by the hand, implying that he was a young boy. And he takes him aside to hear his story. And notice they refer to Paul, the prisoner. Now, that may seem like a derisive term, but Paul saw it as a badge of honor. It was a badge of honor because it signified his service and suffering for Christ. Paul said in Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in my prayer of mine, for you all making my my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So prison was all mixed in with grace, confirmation of the gospel, partnership, relationships being formed, coming out of imprisonment. Ephesians 3.1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. There was a purpose to the trial. There was a purpose to the imprisonment that the Gentiles may hear the gospel. You may not know the initial purpose, but God has a purpose for the trial. At the least, we can say this every time, God wants our faith to grow, right? In every trial, we know that's the case. There may be other specifics, but we know in the moment, God always wants our faith to grow, to look to him, to draw near. Paul was able to welcome such suffering. I think because he had answered the bigger question of the lordship of Christ. You know, some people maybe do this at their initial point of salvation when they first came to faith in Christ. Others might do it a year or two or years later when they go through a crisis and they realize that they've kind of squandered a lot of their Christian life and now I'm really going to get serious. You know, I, I want to be under the authority of Christ for my life I've made a mess of finances, relationships, or whatever. You know, I'm going to do things God's way, or at least attempt to. So by living under the lordship of Christ, when my desires conflict with the will of God, the will of God will always win out. I'll always do what Christ wants me to do. So consequently, I'm called a slave, a bondservant. In other words, I have a master, Jesus, and I'm always going to do what the master tells me. So in that sense, he's truly my Lord. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, for 
Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still try, striving, trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Guess who else is called a bondservant? Jesus. In Philippians 2.7, you say, how's that? Because Jesus had to do the will of God in going to the cross. Now, you remember when Jesus was in the garden and he was sweating great drops of blood. Lord, is there any way that this cup could pass from me? I mean, there's there's a temptation there. It went to the nth degree. He was tempted more than any of us because he never sinned, so the temptation would last to the nth degree. We know we give in. He never gave in. And so he had this temptation of, man, there's an easy way out here. Just don't do this. So he was tempted. He said, is there any way this could pass? And no. No. I'm going to do the will of God. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to suffer this torture. I'm going to be nailed. I'm going to have that crown of thorns. I'm going to have the spear in the side because you've asked me to. Because I love you. Because my life is committed to you. That's lordship. That's a bondservant to the master. And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath uh, neither to eat nor drink till they've killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young men, charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. It's interesting that Luke writes these sections kind of repetitively. He's, he's, he's given this scenario before, but he's repeating it again. And I think he does that for the sake of drama, and he does that to add some further detail. The plot was to be executed the following day, if possible. Apparently, these fanatics who made this vow to fast until they die only intended to fast one day. (laughs) Um, He has urged the tribune, Lysias, to face the reality of the plot and to spring into action. And as a part of that response, it was necessary that the Jews should not hear the news that he knows about this so that Paul could get out of town without them following. Now, Roman law put Lysias in charge of these prisoners uh, of Paul. And any prisoner that received harm, Lysias would be on the line for that. So, He could not afford to take this piece of espionage uh, lightly, so he acted on it immediately. Next week, we're going to see how it unfolds. You know, in the neighborhood that Janet and I live in, there are water, uh, waterways, and there is a, uh, some woods close by. And uh, often in our yard, late at night, you will find six to ten deer just laying in our backyard. And they just lay down right there, just 30, 40 feet from our window. This is very soothing. It's kind of peaceful. You know, we don't want to disturb them. 
you know, except when I'm getting my sight in. But other than that, um, <laughs> just a joke, I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, you know, we don't want to scare them off, and it's, it's amazing how we'll, we'll turn the lights off, turn the TV off, open up the blinds a little bit, and we just sit there quietly observing them. And it's amazing the, the calm that happens. We just sit there for 20, 30 minutes. It's so peaceful. And it kind of reminds me of when trials hit. We have to find a way to allow the promises of God to enter our hearts, to enjoy his presence, to turn off the noise, to be concentrated on him, to enjoy his peace, clear our head of lies, like I talked about before. God really does have us in his hands, knowing the distinction between an inconvenience and a real trial. And when a real trial arrives, realize that God has designed purpose in my life. And I see his, his big hand ready to intervene as he sees fit and know that I'm right there in his palm. And when, when all of those things converge, you know what happens? I can rest a little better. I can experience that peace. But I realize I have to be engaged in this process. I have to, to be willful in shutting out the distractions, willful in allowing his word to, to penetrate my heart and to gaze upon him. And that peace can come. I want you to be available to him to allow that peace to penetrate your heart. He's not so far off. You know, emotionally, it may feel like that when you go through the trial, but the word tells us for every believer, he never forsakes us. He's always there, even though we don't feel like it. He's always there, right there, you ever screamed out for somebody in your house and they're like right behind you? He's always right there, ready to listen. Let's pray.